The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with political strategist and pollster, Cornell Belcher. Belcher is one of the nation's most respected pollsters. He is the founder and president of Brilliant Corners Research and Strategies. We started our conversation around what's the political landscape for 2023, a year ahead of the 2024 presidential election. We started with the newly seated 118th Congress and the better than expected outcome for Democrats. It wasn't a little bit better than expected. It was historical. Mm -hmm. Look, um, Barack Obama lost, um, I believe we've lost over 50 seats. Um, You know, Bill Clinton lost some 40 seats, right? Uh, Trump lost uh, 40 some seats or, or better, I believe. I'm getting old, uh, my, 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 <laughs> and my memory. I drink a lot, Ed. So especially these days. So my memory, it's not what it used to be. But when you look at how historically, uh, in this term, Republicans are supposed to have, in fact, a wave election, and then and then look at the setup. Mm-hmm. Then, right, you had real economic concerns coming out of the pandemic. And you had $100 million of advertising by Republicans saying that the economy was terrible and inflation was terrible. And that was all Joe Biden's Democrats' fault. Regardless of whether or not we understand that that from the data standpoint, that's not true. And, and, and there's no magical button that, that Biden can push for inflation. And you had real concerns about, about crime and safety. They were set up to have another historic mm-hmm. um, election. And they didn't. And that that says something, too. Right. That says that speaks loudly that historically they were not able to build a wave election like they have been in the past. And I think that's an important story also. 
tell me what you would like the average voter to hear in that beyond the obvious, because there is still a lot of despair uh, for the everyday person. And they see a lot of dysfunction uh, coming out of Washington. So what should they take out of that? What they should take out of that is that you're going to get the government that you're going to, you're not, you're going to get the government that, that ultimately we deserve. And what I mean by that is, look, part and partial why they didn't have a, a, a red wave. Because, Ed, I don't know, call me crazy, but when you tell a woman what she can and can't do with her body, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe some people have an issue with that, right? When you try to overthrow our democracy, <laughs> maybe some people have an issue with that. When you put anti-Semitism and racism and misogyny uh, at the forefront of so much of your sort of who you are as as a campaign and, and a candidate. I mean, and they weren't even, you know, we've talked in the past about dog whistles, and they're not dog whistles anymore, right? Mm-hmm. You look at you look at their you look at their their candidates for senate and, and governor. They're not even dog whistles. They they are standing beside people and going to rallies with people who are pushing replacement theory. Yeah. So you did have a different kind of turnout. What typically happens, Ed, is that is that is that young people and people of color pull back in a midterm election, right? Mm-hmm. You have really what I've talked about here, Ed, you have two electorates fighting for control of the control of the future of America. You have one that is older, less diverse, and they're very anxious about the changes that are happening in this country. And you have one that is younger more diverse and are part of the changes that are happening in this country aren't and are not anxious about it and they're fighting for 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 control of this country. What I mean by we get the democracy or the government we deserve is this. It we are lucky to get 50% turnout of eligible voters mm-hmm. in this country. We're lucky. And if you look at the last if you look at if you look at midterms over the last two decades, right, two decades, take out 2018 because that was an outlier. We had turnout, turnout you know, usually ranges somewhere between 38 and maybe 42% turnout, which is terrible, right? So you have this narrow swath of people determining what's happening in this country. Now, we don't know what the exact turnout was from this past midterm. But we do know it was, it looked, this this past midterm looked more like 2018 than it did 2010. Um, but still, Ed, when you can't get, a, when you can't get the majority of people engaged in this process, then that's what I mean by we ultimately get the government that we, yeah. that, we that, that we, that we deserve, right? So you now do have a government that's for, at least in the House of Representatives, you're going to have Lawmakers pushing for laws and trying to move legislation that the vast majority of Americans don't want and didn't ask for. So let me take you to that, because what's interesting and and I'll get to participation in just a moment. But what is interesting is even though the red wave 
the predicted red wave didn't happen. Um, the apple cart is upset enough that a small group of people can stall, trip up, change, even push things through if people are asleep at the wheel. How do you watch that to make sure that you don't have this rabid, small, conservative, right-wing um, group push through legislation that does not speak to what the majority of Americans want? Yeah, that's a really good question, and there's no simple answer to it. Well, let me start by saying this. Not all of us saw thought there was going to be a red wave. Some yeah. of us, like me, were very vocal about, and you look at the data, guys, there's no red wave here in this data. But that also speaks to the, manip the manipulation and, pop and propaganda that we're seeing. Uh, that was intentional. Um, they, there are forces in this country that, that win when they can make us cynical. And so when you talk about turnout, you talk about participation, you know, there's so many people that I talk to sort of in focus groups that they're, they just don't believe anything matters and they're so cynical about the process. But Ed, that's how the other side wins. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the narrow, and look, this McCarthy is speaker only in, in, in title um, because he's given away mm -hmm. all most of the power and the leverage um, and legitimacy and integrity of the speaker's office. So the emperor has no clothes. Um, How long do you think he'll last? I mean, with the idea of just one person being able to say, hey, got to look at this again. I, I don't think he's going to last very long. And, and you know, at, at what cost, you know, at some point you have to ask, where's integrity? At what cost? You know, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to, how much damage are you willing to do to, to the office? And to the body, in order for you to gain power, and there's no and there's no shame anymore um, about it. But but and I will connect the dots to all of this, right back to 2008. Cornell, how are you going to connect the dots back to 2008? Um, I would argue that when you see, and even Republicans, look, I, you know, I was reading an article in the New York Times. Uh, that rag, right? The New York Times. I was reading an article in the New York Times. I think it was yesterday or the day before. It was like David Brooks and another conservative uh, bemoaning how the Republican Party isn't their Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, and how they've gone off of off the deep end. Um, but I'm going to trace all of this right back to, I would argue, America's original sin that we've never confronted. Um, and the a lot of people talked about Barack Obama as some sort of historical racial breakthrough. Uh, and I remember people, and you remember this, that they were talking, they were writing articles about America as being post-racial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and I was even in Paris when uh, when I found out America's post-racial after the election, because all the French were coming up to us and talking about how America is post-racial. They had this racial breakthrough. Now, many of us knew that wasn't, in fact, we were not post-racial. Um, it was a breakthrough, but not the breakthrough that they were thinking of. It was a breakthrough, it was a demographic breakthrough. It was a changing of America breakthrough. Because 
because because look, Barack Obama did not do better among white voters, um, uh, dramatically better among white voters than John Kerry did. Right? There was w- maybe one percentage point that that separated Barack Obama and John Kerry uh, when you look at the percentage of the white vote nationally. The difference between Barack Obama and John Kerry were about five or six million more brown people. And that was the breakthrough. And a black man in the White House was a cataclysmic event for so many Americans and made them uncomfortable. And what happened, and speaking of that midterm, what happened in 2010? We heard calls of started growing in 2009 into 2010, we have to take back our country. Now, Ed, when people say they got to take back the country, we should take them at the word that they really do think they're losing their country, that someone is taking their country away from them. Um, now, trace the dots right back to what many of my Republicans that I know Thought could never happen. That was Donald Trump could win a Republican primary because they'd seen Donald Trump's types before. I mean, I would argue that at, that Pat Buchanan was a Donald Trump, a better Donald Trump, but he couldn't break through. What changed? What changed was the wolf was no longer at the door. The wolf was in the house, and and the anxiousness of the changes that were that, about the changes that were happening in the country. It was a cataclysm. And what happens in a cataclysm? All the rules of the road go out the door when there's a cataclysm. The only thing that that matters is putting this down and saving the house. Um, And look at what Trump did, not only in 2016, but right in his last election, 2020. Um, When he stood in front of crowds and said, I'm going to give you back your country. We're going to make America great again, right? That's all about driving tribalism. And right now, I would argue that that we're we don't understand our politics right now because so many on the on the on the on the right aren't behaving like Republicans in the past because of this cataclysm, and because they understand that that they're fighting for in their zero sum game, they're fighting for their tribal survival, and that's a different equation with politics today than it was. Uh, two, two, three yeah. decades ago. Yeah, uh, let, let's take that a step further in, in terms of the cataclysm. I, I think about what Donald Trump did masterfully, quite frankly. If you think about the language that he used, not behind closed doors, but in front of the door, that was usually reserved for just a few, and I'll still call them fringe, even though they were dead center in the Republican Party, someone like a George Wallace, for instance certain language um, that he was comfortable enough in using in rallies. And and even he was editing himself. Uh, What Donald Trump has done is he has allowed some of the language that, to your point, two decades ago never would have been said in public to now be said by, quote unquote, mainstream, middle of the road, quote, end quote, Republicans comfortably. And to your point, it's gone from a dog whistle to a foghorn. Is this here to stay? Yes. It's here to stay. Well, it's never left us. And I mean, it, it is races, race matters have always mattered politically in this country. 
right? And I'm someone, look, I'm a child of the South. Um, you know, tell me when, tell me when race matters didn't play a part in our, in our, in our politics. And, and right. They always look, played a part, but, but the language and the veracity of language that is used now post Donald Trump was not used in the same way. It, it's, 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 I will, I will give you that it's more mainstream, but, but, but at the same time, Ed, um, uh, George H. Bush was trailing when he, until he put out the Willie Horton ad. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and Ronald Reagan wanted you to remember a country before. Yes. It was racial That's strike. Right. <laughs> right. Well, well, and, and, and understand, look, we, we, Ronald Reagan, where did Ronald Reagan start his campaign at? He started his campaign in, in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of us who are steeped in the history of the civil rights understand, we understand what Philadelphia, Mississippi means symbolically. Why did he do that? Ed? Mm-hmm. Um, why did Ronald Reagan talk about, ter- you know, welfare queen? Um, you know, this is all really a within the continuum of the Southern strategy. Mm-hmm. It is all sort of what Atwater talked about, right? Is that where it talked about? You start off what he said, you start off in what he said, nigga, 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 nigga. But then you get to the point where you can't do that anymore. So you got to be more nuanced about it. You got to start talking about, you know, uh, busing and and these people getting more from 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 the government than other people. You got to be more nuanced about it. But it's all the same thing. It's all traces back to nigga, 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 nigga. Um, and this this conflict, right? This this conflict, this 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 ghost of America's original sin holds keys to our downfall. And why do I say that? I say that because. And we've never seen a first world country of our magnitude, that is a so-called democracy, do what's going to happen in America over the next 10, 15 years where we become awfully close to a majority-minority country in the next 15 or more years. 15 years, we're close enough to, to that tipping point anyway. where where one group of people who think, one group of people who historically, if you play the zero-sum game, one group of people who've historically controlled this country um, have to share power, or, or worse yet, have to hand the mantle of power over to another group of people who they don't consider in their tribe. There's going to be incredible tension. Let me take you to something that is interesting. Presidential campaigns, um, wannabes, are often made by moments. Um, There, amongst all of the foolishness we saw in the McCarthy vote, at the end of it, we saw what I think was a moment for Hakeem Jeffries. The question is, does he take that moment and bounce it somewhere else? Um, I was getting text and on uh, my social media of people immediately saying our next president, uh, people who knew nothing about Hakeem, didn't even know he was in Congress, uh, ready to, you know, uh, put a a yard sign up for him. (laughs) 
What do you think that moment was for him? Anything? No, I think it was, you're, you're so right. So spot on. And what's sad for a lot of us, for, for a lot of people is that, is that people think, and a lot of our, a lot of people in politics thinks that po- think politics is about, um, you know, a set of policy positions and 10 point plans <laughs> And, and they're really about a moment where people say, hey, I like this person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it certainly happened to Barack Obama. Um, and I think perhaps it is really interesting because I, but I, but I, but I, I'm, I pull back from saying this because, because it's such a, it seems almost blasphemy. But I think um, Hakeem's, what Hakeem did, and I'm, Congressman Jefferson, I'm sorry, and I and I'm in full transparency. I, I know the congressman. I come. I like the congressman a great deal. Um, what he did came as close to um, a moment as Obama's no red or blue states mm-hmm. speech as we've seen since he since Obama did it. Uh, and and so people who don't even know anything about uh, the leader, right? We'll call him leader now because he's the leader. Um, all of a sudden, were caught up in the emotion and said, "I, I like him. I want to know more about him." Um, there, being the speaker of the house, you, 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 as you, as a historian, you also know this. There's not a lot of people go from speaker of house to president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not a position where that lends itself. To broader national office, mm-hmm. one of the reasons because you actually have to get into the weeds of legislating, yeah, and you make a lot of enemies, and you do have to play hardball politics. Uh, if you are the speaker of the house or the leader, you got to do you got to make enemies, right? In a way that you don't have to do necessarily if you're a senator, uh, if you're a senator, because quite frankly, most of our senators the only thing. As senators do a lot of talking, <laughs> not like they actually do a lot of delivering. Um, and what you're going to see, Ed, over the next couple of years is they're going to spend hundreds of millions, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of millions of dollars vilifying lead the, uh, Hakeem Jeffries. They're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to make middle America afraid of him. They're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to make him a radical socialist. And we understand, again, history keeps repeating itself. They call Martin Luther King a radical mm-hmm. socialist. Right? It, they, you know, almost any um, leader of color becomes a scary socialist, communist, radical. They're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars doing that over the next year or so. Here's what's unique about Hakeem Jeffries in this position, too. Unlike, quite frankly, um, a myriad of African-American politicians before him, he understands and plays very, very well the inner workings of Congress. He sat at the right, left, and feet of Nancy Pelosi and understands what needs to be done to run that. Do you think that will help him at all in trying to combat some of that? I think he will be a very successful leader. I do. And I think eventually he's going to be speaker. He's going to be a historic speaker. And I think 
I think he's going to be a speaker on the on the scale of Nancy Pelosi, which is big. Because yeah, let's step back for a minute. Folks don't understand how gangster Nancy Pelosi was. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi was Al Capone, man. <laughs> people people miss that she was that in, in heels and and, and and a couture dress. Um, Barack, Barack Obama's biggest achievement, one of the biggest achievements President Obama talks about was is still the ACA, is still uh, Affordable Care Act. And that does not happen without Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. That does not happen with name, right? People forget going in 2008, America, we were on our way into a Great Depression. Yeah. And people literally on their knees begging Nancy Pelosi to do something. And we don't get the sort of comprehensive legislation from the from Congress in 2008, especially such a divided Congress in 2008, without without the leadership of Nancy Pelosi. You can you can look back over the last decade, decade and a half of the most impactful legislation for Americans, and Nancy Pelosi's fingerprints are all over it. McCarthy is struggling. We asked, will McCarthy make it? Given sort of his narrow majority, and given how fractious his 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 uh, his caucus is, Nancy Pelosi moved heaven and earth, historic pieces of legislation, with that same narrow majority, and 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 a caucus that leaves behind doors with the with the with with the left and. And 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 the and the moderate Dems and the blue dog Dems, mm-hmm. just as as divided on issues um, as we've seen some in in, in the in the Republican caucus, but she brought them all together, and and moved the ball. I think leader. I think Jeffrey. I think Hakeem Jeffries will, will will be that sort of great leader, but at does that translate into again? Does that translate into what is necessary or, or positioning for the run for presidency? He's a young man. I think the I think the future for him is really bright, um, and I think he will be an extraordinary uh, speaker at some point. But history tells us that that doesn't necessarily translate into. The, the best positioning for running for president. And and let's say, uh, you know, some would rather have that position than be president, yeah. you know, quite frankly. Uh, and there, as you've already illustrated, a lot of power. Uh, and, and you know, you can go long in two terms. So yes. <laughs> you, can, you can look at it that way. Let me take you to a couple of things before before we let you go. Um, you know, the elephant in the room is is Joe Biden. And, um, you know, whether, in fact, we'll hear in the next few days whether he's going to uh, re-up and run again. Um, You know, the administration, I think, has, uh, by means of the people that voted for him, by most accounts, gotten decent grades, not A's and A pluses, but decent grades. Uh, What do you think? Be a prognosticator for me, if you will. Uh, And then and then what do you think the, the administration has to do? Uh, in the next few months to um, kind of make those who voted for him comfortable? Well, first, let me say this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I didn't work for the, for the Biden campaign. Right. I'm, I, I don't work for the Biden White House in any way. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Howard, I'm, I work for Howard Dean, then I work for Barack Obama. I'm a Dean Obama guy. 
So let me qualify what I'm about to say. And Joe Biden is better positioned for re-election than Barack Obama was and better election, position for election than uh, Bill Clinton was. And I say that because of this. People are always underestimating Joe Biden. And part of that is, and, and part of his, part of how he, how he survives is people underestimate. Um, there were lots of calls for Joe Biden to, 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 to push harder or to, you know, cut people off. And Joe Biden comes from this school of thought where, you know what, I'm going to take what I can get when I can get it and I'm going to come back for more. And I'm going to try to work with people. Even even if they even even if they even if they you know call us names and bash us, I'm gonna yeah. keep going at it. I'm gonna keep trying to work the process to see what I can get out of the process. So again, very narrow majorities in both the House and the Senate. And we have an infrastructure package that the last time I checked, the last three presidents promised they would get an infrastructure package. Because our infrastructure, and we all, every American knows, whether you're Republican yeah. or Democrat, you know our infrastructure across this country is falling apart, and we're falling behind China and the Pacific Rim and Europe because our infrastructure is so terrible. We've got to position and make the investments for the future. They moved a historic piece of legislation that will transform this country over the next several years. And you know what? And, and so this year, People are going to start seeing projects all over this country that that you know needed to have done being done, and Joe Biden's name is going to be on those projects. One of the big problems that the that some of our young people um, get up mobilized about is the is the environment and how we're not taking it serious enough. The largest investment in our in and in, in a clean energy in our environment. That we've ever had. Most people that think it would mm-hmm. happen. How could this possibly happen? And he did it. You know, uh, and so you're going to have right now, and what I love, Ed, is that inflation, you know, and I said this, after Republicans are not spending tens of millions of dollars telling us how bad the economy is and how bad inflation is, people's perception of the economy are going to actually begin to move back into place they're more aligned with what the data actually tells us. And the data tells us, quite frankly, <laughs> we've created a lot of jobs and are, and we're still creating a lot of jobs. And inflation is slowing. And for six months now, it's a trend. Inflation is, is, is slowing. It's still not where we want it, but it's slowing. And it's certain, we are certainly better off than any of our European counterparts. Um, so you have jobs being created. You have inflation slowing. You have one point what one point four trillion dollar cut in the deficit under under Biden's under Biden's management and his policies, um, and you have America once again being the arsenal for democracy around the world as as this man has held together, has brought back a, a, co- a, a international coalition, and and has been able to heal some of the wounds in our international relationships caused by Donald Trump and hold together NATO and, and Europe sacrificing, you know, mightily as through the winter for energy prices to, and, and to hold together this coalition 
in the Ukraine to 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 be to stand up to authoritarianism and be the arsenal of democracy. My God, Ed, if we can't sell that, I mean, damn, that's yeah. pretty damn good. The, the the hard thing for that though is, let's be honest, it takes a minute for for those numbers, which are real, to trickle down to the pocketbook. Yeah, and people have to be able to hold on and then be able to see the vision that these policies did bring you back to a more comfortable place. Yes, but and and, and this is but my point I've always made is that the narrative arc of a presidency is not the narrative arc of 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 a, of, of a senator or a member of congress. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Um, you know, you remember in 2010, uh people were literally writing op-eds saying Barack Obama should run again. Yeah. Uh, but but the narrative arc for presidency is different. So going into that fourth year, Barack Obama had a fantastic story to tell Americans. And my only point is that if you thought Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and again, people were saying Bill Clinton's done. If you think Bill, you know, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama had good stories to tell towards the end yeah. of that four year, yeah. Joe Biden has just as good, if not a better story. Now, I'm not going to blow smoke and say, Joe Biden's and this white and it's not look the White House knows this. Joe Biden's primary obstacle is, and you hear it in focus groups all the time, and it's not even Republicans. Put Republicans aside, they're never going to be for Joe Biden. But he had a majority coalition. He got fifty-one percent. And but members of his own coalition have real questions about his age. Right? We're, let's not beat around the bush. And, and it's legitimate. It's fair. It's completely yeah. fair that they have questions about his age. So to me, the number one, the number one obstacle to his to his reelection is reassuring the majority of the voters who voted for him yeah. that he's still up to the job and up to the task. He's got to show he's got to show strength and vitality. And again, and when we circle back around to our to our conversation we we're having a moment ago, it's not Joe Biden's ten point plan. It's not all that other stuff. In the end, is he a strong leader with energy and vitality to get the job done? Yeah, because for him, that's what it's going to be. It's not whether you're likable. He's a likable guy. He's a good man. I mean, he is he is that. I mean, the the times I've spent away from a microphone with him. I mean, he's a genuinely good guy now. so it'll be interesting to see. All right, uh, two more questions, but let me ask you about th- this uh, person, his second in command, if you will, before we get to the last two questions, and that's Kamala Harris. Um, you know, interesting seat that she sits in. A vice president always has an interesting seat, in my opinion. Um, but what do you think she thinks uh, when the door is closed? Well, I, I won't. I can't. I can't get into what I think she thinks. I will say this. Um, being the first, as you know, Ed, is not something any, is, yeah. it's not, it's not a, a walk in the park. And, and look, there are, but, but she is getting her, putting her head down and she's doing the work, right? You know, she, she's been on the road and, and look, no one's more happier than them having 51 senators than she is because now she's free to go and do, and do and go on the road and do the work. And look, she's been in the Midwest talking about infrastructure. She's been, she's been out West, uh, uh, talking, talking, talking about, and talking about investments during the campaign trail. I would argue during the midterm campaign, 
no one better focused and encapsulated the conversation about women's rights better than she has done. Um, so here's the, here's the elephant, though. She's been a good soldier. There's no question about that. There will be those who will whisper to her, I am sure, that being a good soldier, because you're relatively young as relates to politics, is not going to suit you down the line. You know, I, hopefully she doesn't have th- those, those sort of people around her because those people are dumb, because those people don't really understand politics. And, and I've heard this time and time again, this conversation about they, they want her to, and it's the expectation games. They want her, she has a different expectation than other, than other vice presidents because she's a woman and because she's a woman of color. The expectation game is different. Mm-hmm. And I've heard time and time again, I, people talk about, well, I want her to be out in front on X, Y, and Z issue. I want her to do this and that on X, Y, and Z issue. Not understanding, she's the vice president. president. (laughs) (laughs) She can't get out in front of the president. No, no vice president can get out in front of the president. She can't lead. She's got, she's the vice president. And I think that expectation game is one that has been problematic. But in the end, her success is tied to his success as, as as, as the vice president. And she has done a great deal of work to help this administration be successful. And the last thing I'll say, and again, I I didn't work on the Biden campaign. Ed, they underestimate Vice President Harris at their their own own peril. I mean, this is a woman who came up in in California politics, came up in Willie, you know, um, was it leader uh, Willie's politics? In in California, this is a woman who has run for office, statewide office, in the most diverse, biggest state in this country, uh, and has done it successfully. She's navigated. um, uh, She's she's navigated to me politics that uh, that a lot of people would fail in. And right now, it's hard to say. And a lot of people, and, and again, it's the expectation game, but it's also. The sexism game, and as a lot yeah. of people are saying, well, I don't know if she make a good president, and all and all these other men are lining up to say I'll make a better president. How the hell are you going to tell me you're more you you're more you'd be better at the job and have more experience at the job yeah. than the person who's literally sitting beside the guy doing the job now? Yeah, and let's be clear, she's young enough that if in fact he gets a second term and does well, that she could absolutely shoehorn herself in. Uh, and she will be at that point the favorite uh, for the Democratic Party at that point. Uh, but she will not be. She, but because of because she's a woman and because she's a well, person of color. Yes, she will not be able to clear the field almost. No, no the way that say Al. The, the way, yes, that that it, that there there would be no competition if if this were a white male in that same. Position. Yes, no, no, no I, he, she, he would basically clear clear the field. Yeah. Last two questions. Um, you know, we always talk about the idea of the presidency being much bigger than the person you vote into office. Um, and I think we saw that with the appointments that Trump was able to make with the Supreme Court. When we talk about black interests, we're, we're looking at two things that come to mind uh, immediately. That's the redistricting that will be in front of them uh, with the case uh, from Alabama and two cases from colleges on affirmative action. Um, do you do you do you think that these things are, and now I'm talking about not just political leadership, but but uh, social leaders as well. Do you think that we're making enough noise about what's in front of the court and getting the electorate to make noise to try to sway 
um, you know, actions? No. And, and, and I'm going to go to a kind of a weird place on this. Oh, I'm going to go, but I'm going to try to land the plane. <laughs> um, black visibility does not equate to black power, right? Mm. That's a famous um, um, uh, Dr. Hamilton and, and Stokely. We have a lot of black visibility, not enough black power. And what I mean by that is there are, for better or worse, and I think it's for worse, super PACs right now run a large part of our politics because you have these, these super PACs will have $100 million and they'll define what's important and what the campaign's going to be about. And so often the central focus and conversation of the vast majority of the money's being spent aren't on the issues that, that have to that relate to black and brown people. That's a lack of black power. Mm-hmm. And we have some PACs and organizations that are trying to do the work and raise the funds, but they struggle and we don't make the investments, the grassroots investments as, as individuals. And certainly I would make an, I would argue that I would like to see more of our 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 three four percent in our of 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 our black and brown communities making more investments in our organizations that move our messages and that mobilize us around our issues. And I got so tired of the conversation about um, the economy, 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 the top issue. And we just got to talk about the economy. And if we had just talked about the economy, uh, we would not have seen the turnout that we saw among young people, mm-hmm. brown people. Um, uh, there are more issues. And look, hell, for, for most black people, the economy is always the top issue. When the hell is the economy not the top <laughs> issue for black people? Mm-hmm. But that does not mean it's the only issue. You know, it's hard to, it's hard for black people to look at. I mean, look at what the LAPD just did to, to that to that young teacher uh and in LA it's hard for black people not to look at mm-hmm. not be like uh we need police reform how how can that police and reform not be a top issue for black people uh, but we have to empower our organizations and our campaigns and our candidates um to to have a conversation and force these policy enforce these policies. We've got to be, we've got to get a little bit, we've got to get more mature about politics. And this is, goes back to my conversation about the cynicism. Um, I, I, I get so, I get myself get so cynical when I hear young people, especially young people of color, talk about how they don't have power or that nothing can change. And there's nothing more, you know, nowhere in the world does a a 18 or 19 year old person have the power that an 18 or 19 year old mm-hmm. black person in in Georgia or Ohio have. Nowhere in the world does that does does an 18 or 19 year old have the power to not only change what's happening in their local area, but their state and their country in the world. Because that 18-year-old 
in Georgia has the ability to participate. And through their participation, you change the face of the Senate and you change the outcomes and you flip a state like Georgia from, from, from red to blue and you get a different president. And that president puts policies not only in the country, but across the globe in, in practice that are different. And that's the power that our young people have in this country that young people in no other country has. And they just got to realize that power. And we got to keep talking to them about that power. No one has the power in the world the way the young people in this country have the power uh, to, cha to change things. And, and the other side wins when they drive the cynicism about nothing can change. We've got to be invested in the future and making change. I almost don't want to ask this last question because that's such a, a, a great moment to end on. But I want to take it to what I have been dismayed about for a long time. And that is the fact that our electorate, and I will put this back again on leadership, for me, waits too long to do exactly what you talked about doing. And that is engaging people in the process yeah. of politics. <laughs> the idea that we get, you know, ginned up a month or two before an election has not serviced us well when there will be months and months and months leading into that you should be playing the game. I always tell people election day should not be your last day of participation. It really should be your first day. Yes. What would you like to see the black electorate do to to correct that in black leadership, understanding that you've got to mobilize people a lot sooner? <sighs> It, 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 it goes back to politics 101 and understanding that we, our system is set up for competing interests, right? Now, I'm a Virginian. Um, you know, a lot of Virginians wrote that, weighed in heavily on that Constitution, Madison in particular. They set it up as a, as for competition, competing interests. Uh, we've got to get in the game. And we've, got to, we've got to be a part of the competing interests. Um, the loudest voice is the one that is heard. You know, I've heard conversations with um, with <laughs> someone said they met with the with the mayor. I'm not going to say what city it was uh, years back, and the mayor said, "I agree with everything you're saying. Now make me do it." Hmm. And that's the thing. It is you've got to apply political pressure. You can't. You know, look. It's a good ideal. Doesn't mean politically it's going to happen unless we're applying political pressure, unless we are acting politically. So it's not so democracy isn't a part time thing. It's a full time thing. We have to be vigilant. And, and I'll go back to our organizations. The Black PAC, who is an organization, is a pack run by uh, Adrian Shropshire, and it just started maybe six, seven years ago. And they are trying to build and raise money and have a conversation uh, at the doors and, and over the airwaves with people of color about issues that are most important and frame elections in the context of our issues. They don't have $200 million like, mm -hmm. like some of these other PACs do. We have to make greater investment in our political vehicles in order for us to gain black power. Um, 
And it's it's not rocket science. In order for us to gain black, for in order for black power to be a force and 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 a movement, um, we have to invest in it, and we have to work with it. Um, we can't have the other organizations defining the terms of the debate, or our issues and our conversations are never going to be forefront uh, for policymakers in this country. Yeah. Cornell Belcher, it is always a, 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 an interesting conversation with you, and I greatly appreciate all that you've done, quite frankly, on, on the political forefront for us in terms of making sure that our issues are covered and, and, and watched. And it'll be an interesting two years leading into 2024. Thank you. And thank you for all that you've done, brother. I've been following you for years. <laughs> Thanks, man. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.